Hello, I'm Oliver Wang. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about a heat rock, you know, flammables, arson. <laughs> I'm ripping off your lines now, Morgan. I it's hope, all good, I hope baby. that's okay. That's all good. Today, we will be winding the clock back to 1990 with Anita Baker's compositions. All right. A University of Pennsylvania study five years ago discovered how our memories are geotagged based on location using a GPS-like brain system. These geotags, aided by the hippocampus, encode spatial information when surrounded by a specific location prompt a flood of memories. So why am I bringing this up? Well, when in the presence of two professors, it's just prudent to have some research on deck. (laughs) Also, me and my hippocampus get triggered in certain areas, places and spaces where record stores used to be, like Tower Records on Sunset, where on a post-church Sunday in the summer of 1990... After me and my homegirls weekly music binge, we flipped a coin to decide who got to play music first in the car, and she won. The album she started off with, Anita Baker, Compositions. The time was right, and the vibe was right. To this day, I don't know anyone else but her who burns incense in their car. In those days, black people didn't skip through albums. It was disrespectful, sacrilegious even. So we started at the top with this. I knew the thing was fire early on, but by the time we got to this song, Anita Denise Baker and this album were a problem. When you talk about Anita Baker, it's tempting to say, Anita Baker can sing. But that only speaks to her abilities. Better said, Anita Baker be singing, because that describes her tendencies. Her tendency to float around notes, chords, and times with patience and precision. The phrasing that stretches you from hype at the beginning of a song to spent by the chorus. The emotional IQ that understands the weight of a moan or a well-placed hum. As singing goes, this is how you sonic. Thank God for this podcast and the chance I have to assuage my fear that if we're not careful, we will miss the treasure that is Anita Baker and her platinum-selling Grammy-winning heat rock compositions. To talk about compositions, we invited Fredera Hadley, who, as our good fortune would have it, is in town here in Los Angeles for the Women in Music Festival. Hadley is a visiting professor of ethnomusicology at Oberlin College in Ohio, where she teaches on African-American music. She also writes on music. And I noted in her credits that you used to write for Herb Magazine back in the day. Shout out to yeah, Herb, my old, mag- to Herb. my old magazine alum. She's <laughs> also the founder of Juxi, which provides music education classes and very dope sound music walking tours in New York City. Fredera, welcome to Heat Rocks. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I gotta ask, you know, you had options. <laughs> you had options. You had Rapture. My God, you had Songstress. Um, why is Compositions a heat rock for you? Compositions is a heat rock for me for two reasons. 
song related reasons and one is a timing related reason um the song related reasons are for because of whatever it takes and for fairy tales like fairy tales is a big joker like you slap that song down and it's just kind of like conversation over <laughs> um to me and the time related reasons is that this was 1990 i was 11 years old i had loved anita baker since i had a consciousness of who she was mm-hmm. but i begged my parents to buy me this tape i think i had it on cassette tape right 11 years old and when you think about it like what is an 11 year old really doing begging for music that feels as grown mm. as composition <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know but um my friend um gene denby who writes and works for um npr was on twitter talking about anita baker and singers like her one day and was like you know this is auntie music like that should be a genre auntie music and this was this was the music it, it, and it was like my my aunties and my older cousins played this and this was in the days of shows like Video Soul on BT mm. and Midnight Love on BT. And so this music was everywhere in the ether. I remember staring at those album covers, Rapture's covers, so simple, just her mm-hmm. in a black dress, just simply lit. And she looked so stunning on the Giving You the Best That I Got cover. And by the time she comes out with compositions, I was like, oh, Anita Baker and I go together. I love her. <laughs> you know, at, my, at 11 years old, I was strong in my convictions about my feelings about Anita Baker. And so um, you could talk about any of her albums, Songstress, any of them, Rhythm of Love, whatever. But I came back to compositions because I had such strong memories of consciously choosing to play that album. Yeah. You know, Morgan, we, you and I have talked a lot about how our guests oftentimes will pick for artists who have multiple albums, they won't necessarily pick the biggest one. It'll, it'll always be like one adjacent to that. And this, <laughs> this is a perfect example because compared to giving you the best that I got, which was, what, five times platinum, yep, compositions, right. I think, at the time was considered a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, it didn't right. sell as yeah, well. Yeah. Um, it didn't have the same kind of critical uh, uh, praise as, as compared to some of her earlier ones. But I think in the, tw- what is it, 38 years, 20, sorry, 28 years since then, it's been not that it needed redemption, but I think people have revisited in a way where they recognize things about it now that they didn't think then. Yeah. And I'm wondering for you, I mean, you obviously love this album from Jump, but when you listen to the album now, do you hear anything different that you, you didn't pick up on when you were 11 years old? I would like to say I was all knowing at 11, but I wasn't. <laughs> we, we, all, we all wanted to think. But, um, but I, I was listening to it today, actually, and I was. And in recent years and recent listenings, I have so much better language to describe what I love about her. I think what always struck me about Anita Baker's voice or in her music, musically, growing up, I was a pianist and I was mm. a singer. Mm. I was a classical pianist and I was a gospel singer. And so, and I have a lower register to my voice. And so I always felt like my voice was different or weird or something. Mm-hmm. And I, her timbre, her vocal timbre is so distinct mm-hmm. that that really resonated with me. I feel like she has a pretty high voice, actually. She's singing soprano most of her stuff, but the timbre of it makes it feel so much richer and lower. You know, it, this is the 1980s, so people are pointing to... Um, Whitney Houston as the voice and she absolutely is but there was this crop of R&B singers um, like Anita Baker and Alita Adams Regina Bell folks like that that just had these really rich um, timbres and colors that I couldn't get enough of 
and that absolutely had a place in my world. So I think it was that. Hmm. And she always had um, the piano parts in her musical arrangements were always really, Oof. really strong. Hmm. I mean, she's working with George Duke, Greg Filling Games, folks like that. And so as a pianist, I was always super interested. Hmm. And, you know, you think about those classic Anita Baker songs and what do you remember? You remember the piano. Rapture and sweet, come on, like, come on. <laughs> you know, those piano parts are just gold. And um, so musically, um, and and again, I keep going back to fairy tales. The extended version of the album version of that song is maybe about seven minutes. Right. And they used to play it on Quiet Storm Radio. I grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida, WPOM, 1600. This was AM radio. And um, they used to play the extended version every night. And I would just kind of like, I was supposed to be asleep, have the radio up in my bed, like listening to it. There's a complexity there in terms of the jazz language that they're drawing Mm -hmm. on. But it felt... It didn't feel heady. It felt necessary and it felt beautiful. And I just kind of latched on to that. And the same with her singing. Mm. Sure. And a lot of people, scholars included, like to poo-poo the 80s, 80s music, 80s R&B, like, oh, it's just quiet storm, this jazz light, blah, blah, blah. I take personal offense to that because... That's, go in, go in. <laughs> because I'm sentimental. That's the, those are the years in which I was growing up, right? Yeah. And and I was coming into my own kind of musical preferences or whatever. But I think the ethnomusicologist part of me understands that that music serves such an important function in a world where people are trying to... The 80s, people are trying to put life back together again, industrialization has collapsed not to get super nerdy about it but cities are changing people just trying to figure stuff out Yeah, and you need a soft counterpoint at the end of the day because despite all of that people are still falling in and out of love people are still trying to figure out how to move through life and to me this music real. if you're talking about the Luther Vandross and Freddie Jackson's and James Ingram all right. those people people Bryson people Bryson Pete Lord people Bryson and the wisdom I'm passing on to you Cause love is so much more More than just a praise again A fantasy full of joy and pain Part of reality It's calling out the name All these folks are giving a necessary voice to that right. and the songwriting is so strong so you're saying if it wasn't for deindustrialization we would never have gotten <laughs> I like this thesis I, I like what you're Not, working with oh, that was that. a gross oversimplification but you know just the idea that folks no matter if you if you're looking at these decades like the right. civil rights era and then the 70s has disco it has black and I'm proud and lots of you know sort of defiance 
I think it was a necessary moment of relative quiet mm. and reflection and people trying to just figure it out and and look at their lives. And, you know, you asked me, what do I hear differently now? Obviously now I'm 38 and I'm grown and the, the themes about love and relationships yeah, yeah. are much more resonant. Back then I was like, this, this, you know, whatever it takes. Like I had no point of reference. I was 11. <laughs> you know, I was still like, boys are disgusting. What is love? You know, but as an adult, you really understand... Um, she was speaking to the 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 shades of love and relationships sure. in very descriptive ways. It bothered me that the critics didn't embrace this album. Mm-hmm. For me, this album was when I like completely fell in love with Anita mm-hmm. Baker. I was on the train before. I mean, songstress is... Yep. That's just a gift all by itself. Yep. Um, even if the only song on there had been Angel, that's enough. Yep. Um, but by the time I got to this album, I was like, oh, my God, I'm completely like sold. The thing that I always loved about Anita Baker, and I'm glad that you're bringing up her singing was, and, you know, confession is good for the soul, so I'm going to go ahead and say it. There were a few songs I didn't know what she was saying. <laughs> it was like a Michael McDonald thing. Like, yo, <laughs> you, that's real. You feel what I'm talking about? No. Oh, that's absolutely real. Where I had to listen to it a few times to be like, oh, she's saying I'm pacing the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're gone from me, I'm mm-hmm. pacing the floor. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was like, what is she saying? She's facing this alone? <laughs> what is going on? The importance of that was that it forced me to just listen to the song's presentation yeah. and not what she was saying. These are songs you sing when you've been in therapy for. Listen, <laughs> listen. Uh, more than you know. Listen. Um, these are these are not bubblegum songs. And if we talk about 1990 and the and the the big uh, R and B songs for for women, I mean, one of these things is not like the other. You got Mariah Carey, "Vision of Love." You got um, Lisa Stansfield, Been Around the World. Been around the world and I, 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 I can't find my baby. I don't know when, I don't know why. Why he's gone away and I don't know where he can be. My baby, but I'm going to find him. You have an invoke, Hold On To Your yep. Love. Yep. steps in and she's like I'm channeling something different yep she's giving you some Betty Carter how about that that phrasing
Something completely different, which requires patience. I think there was a lot of pressure on women to have come from the church and to have br- brought that element. When yeah. we talk about, you know, with Anita Baker, she's right on the cusp, you know, half Pisces, half Aquarius. Yeah. You know, what she's talking about. And I found this great review. I liked it. At first, I thought, am we going to have to run up on this for you? <laughs> but I had to get through the review. I hope that's, this is not one of you guys' homeboys. But uh, this is Jeffrey Hines from the Washington Post. No, no, no. This your homeboy, no, Oliver? Okay. No, no. <clears throat> he says, Anita Baker is not a jazz singer, but when she makes one of her trademark moves, stretching a syllable into an alto moan that slides downward across notes or improvising a trilling soprano harmony to her mm-hmm. just finished melody, she sounds like someone who's listened to a lot of jazz and learned a lot in the process. Now, at that point, I was like, oh, I'm going to whoop Jeffrey's butt. <laughs> but then I had to go back on where she, where he said um, she specializes in rhythm blues and blues ballads about well-weathered love, and her jazz techniques help her to capture the self-conscious ambivalence that is so much a part of adult romance. Mm. And and I really like that because I think she does she does all, the, all those things that she says without yeah. being like, I'm a jazz singer. Yeah. You know, I was never as much of a Anita Baker fan to the extent that the two of you were. I mean, I knew her music because it was she was huge. It was in the air as someone who was listening to the radio back uh, in the late 80s. But the artist that I always think about when I hear Anita Baker is I hear also Sade. Yeah. Of course, those two women, their careers in the 80s very much parallel mm-hmm. each other in terms of they're basically blowing up at the same moment. And the same stations that would program you know, heavy uh, Anita Baker rotation would be the same ones, but also program a lot of Sade. Um I think the difference, and this, I'm thinking back to our, our episode with Ernest Hardy talking about Sade's Love Deluxe, mm-hmm. is that Sade was drawing a lot on what was happening in London and looking at sort of the, the, the kind of the movements of soul music, a future soul in their hip hop, um, and then you know putting this into the unique Sade blender that she does. And Anita Baker is also, and I, I really love the point that you were making earlier, Morgan, about how you look at... Every, every other R&B song in 1990, and then you put up Anita Baker next to it, it's like, this. what's going on here? <laughs> right. So I, I don't really know exactly what my question is, except for in the same way that Sade, I think, transcended or was very hard to pin down in certain kinds of genres, Anita Baker, to me, exists onto her own island with maybe, you know, Sade being like the adjacent island to that. But again, separate from where the currents of R&B at least were moving towards in that moment. I would agree with you. Even going forward, she remained in her own pocket in that way. And that can be discussed positively or negatively mm. because, you know, I, I I remember she was notoriously against, like, people sampling her work and using her work as well. And mm. so, like, mm. if you're thinking about how engaged someone is or isn't in terms of, you know, what's happening around them, I think she was doubled down on no this is what I do yeah. right she did not feel compelled to have to adapt and which she had the luxury of doing because she was so massively successful at mm. it that people weren't like well why you ain't got no 808 singers <laughs> 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 right. that's so real though as, so, <laughs> as blasphemous as it might sound I bet that would knock. I bet you I could mean, put some 808s in, in, in I mean, back Drake, in, in one of his early mixtapes, I believe, maybe the one he was 
doing Fonte or Fonte was on, like I think he raps over like an Anita Baker and they add some drums in that right. or something sure. like that. And sure. so people have done it. Of course you can't clear it at all, right? Right, right. Don't judge me, man. They tend to say that us rappers are materialistic. Say we lack substance. Me saying L about the food wrong though. Uh, we know what you think in love. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Fredera Hadley on Anita Baker's 1999 compositions after a brief word from a couple great Max Fun podcasts. Don't go anywhere. In a world dominated by Dude Bro movie podcasts. A world where Casey Affleck has an Oscar and Angela Bassett does not. Only one podcast is brave enough to call bullshit. Who shot ya? With Ricky Carmona. A lot of people don't know Porgs, Puerto Rican. Alonzo Duralde. I would eat oak jaw. <gasps> April Wolf. I want to interrupt and say yes. that the fish man was real sexy. Drea Clark. I have a real soft spot for King Kong. And women of color. I was like, damn! Right, Kugel got final cut. Kugel got final cut! I just felt like the film was so sour and so completely irrelevant to basically anything in life. Who shot ya? Listen every Friday on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allegra Ringo. And I'm Renee Colbert. And we host a podcast called Can I Pet Your Dog? Renee, can I tell you about a dog I met this week? Uh, I wish that you would. In turn, though, can I tell you about a dog hero? May I tell you about a dog breed in a segment I like to call Mutt Minute? (laughs) I would love that. Could we maybe talk about some dog tech? Could we have some cool guests on, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, Nicole Byer, and Ann Wheaton? I mean... Yeah, absolutely. I'm in. You're on board. What do you say we uh, we do all of this and put it into a podcast? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you think? Perfect. Uh, should we call it like I don't know? Can I pet your dog? Sure. All right. Uh, what do you What do you say we put it on every Tuesday on Maximum Fun or on iTunes? Sounds the- good to me. <laughs> Meeting's over. We're back on Heat Rocks with our guest Fredera Hadley. We're talking about Anita Baker's compositions. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Perry sisters. Yeah. Let's talk about them. I mean, their story, like, I just want that in my bio, even if it's not true. (laughs) You send your, you send a tape of yourself singing over Pat Metheny Mm -hmm. to Pat Metheny. Mm -hmm. And he's with it. And he's like, I love you guys. Want to go on tour? Four sisters from the Bay, right? Yep. They send... <laughs> Pat Metheny's like, we're good. And then you, by chance, run into Anita Baker in the doctor's office, who says she's a fan. So if you're Anita Baker and you run into the Perry sisters, and you know this is how they sound, you say to them right after this annual checkup, meet me in the studio. For real. I mean, their their voices are perfect together. It, it, it isn't very... They're not 60s background vocalists. No. Or, or, they sound like... 
uh, the emotions meet the Jones girls. Mm-hmm. Everyone sounds the same. Mm-hmm. It's just so it's just so perfect. There wasn't an upstaging, yep. and she took them with her mm-hmm. everywhere she went. So when I think about compositions, first you have to deal with the musicians. Right, it's Nathan East, Ugh. Steve Ferrone, and it's Greg Fillinganes. Yes, who like they're like holding the rope and, and Paulino da- Costa. Oh my God! Like right? you can't go wrong with that. Like, <laughs> There's no way. It's like perfect. It's wrong. It's spiritually wrong to have all those people on your <laughs> it's album. It's not fair. She stacked the deck. She stacked it. It isn't. But but you cannot talk about compositions with without talking about the Perry singers, especially on on songs like. Perfect love affair. Yes. Perfect love affair is is such a shock to the system because you think you know where Anita's going, and by the three minute mark, I don't know nothing about what no perfect love affair is at eleven. <laughs> <laughs> I just think it's amazing that music can make you feel like that. Like I would literally be like in the backseat of the car, like swaying, like in my feelings, and my mother's looking at me, like, would "Do you, you know something I don't know, girl?" I got to ask you both, since I have, you know, uh, smart folks and professors in here, <laughs> if you had to teach Anita Baker, and if you and if you decided, well, I'm just going to teach compositions, what song do you start out with first? I would start with um, Love to the Letter, Oof. actually, uh, which was written by James McBride, who also wrote for her on Giving You the Best That I Got. And he also graduated from Overland. Got a shout out, Overland. Shout out, shout out. But um, I teach musicians. We talk a lot about this, like understanding who you work well with and where there's synergy and, you know, like who you, who bring, brings the best out of your playing, of your singing, whatever, what have you. And I think part of the key to her success is that she really did have a knack for understanding who she needed to write with, who she needed to sing and perform with. And so James McBride becomes one of those people. And Love to the Letter, again, is just, it's it's not like any other song on this album. a review of this album where they were kind of like oh it's kind of monotonous and repetitious or whatever but there's subtlety in the pocket of what she does right, right? you can't you're not going to look for a, a, an up-tempo like dance track on it not the way we're used to thinking about dancing right sure. um, on this album but even in what she does there is some diversity and I think Love to the Letter is an example of that that pushes her a little bit because James McBride's voice is different and her ability to kind of convert a song, a well-written song, to the genre of Anita Baker. Um, I would start there and then say, okay, let's move deeper into her bag and into her pocket, which I think 
um, compositions is, I would go to uh, wherever it takes after that. Because most people don't realize Gerald Levert was right. co-writer on Exactly. That song. But once you know that, you're like, oh. It makes sense. Okay. That song just starts out so, just, it's so gully. Yeah. I've always told you. Yes. I'd give yes. anything. And you're just like. Anita Baker has come, opening lines for you. Come <laughs> on. And it's one of those songs. I mean, Anita Baker's done this before. She's opened up a song where she just grabs you and you're like, well, what are you about to do to me? <laughs> <laughs> Which reminds me of Feel the Need, right? Yes. Feel the Need in Me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, when that starts out, you're just like, what is happening? But to her credit, man, she knew how to open a song and she knew how to close. You think the song is over? No. And she's still humming and moaning, especially at the end of Whatever It Takes. I keep going back to fairy tales because it's just one of my favorite songs in life. Greg Fillinghays goes around the world on this solo, and then she's still ad lib, and she's just as excited to listen to him as we are. Is there a sleeper jam on this album that you think doesn't get as much respect? I mean, that might have been your, in a lot of ways, the question you asked about, like, what would you teach first, mm-hmm. in a sense, is sort of, is getting us a little bit beneath the tip of the iceberg. But yeah, is there, is there, is there a song off of here that you feel like people maybe overlook or it doesn't, it's got complexities that most people don't recognize enough of? I would say no one to blame. Mm. Mm. Like, that's a great song. Like, again, it has so many of... Um, the Nita Baker hallmarks, the horns, the piano. If we want to look to a modern or a more contemporary uh, booking for Anita Baker or, or someone who's able to do this really well I think of people like Jill Scott who's able mm. to lyrically mm. uh, speak to the specificity of emotion Here I am again Asking questions Waiting to be moved I am so unsure Of my perception what I thought I knew, I don't seem to. Where is the turn so I can get back to what I believe in? Back. You know, a lot of these songs on compositions are not happy <laughs> they, or have some kind of tinge of melancholy to them. 
and no one to blame is one of those but it's just a, again a really well crafted song where she is you know uh, fully in possession of what she does well those vocals are great and they swell at the right moment and she, and I think that's one of the things I enjoy most about her performance how she's able to allow things to get really really big and wide and open and then gently be like nope I'm not going to let this explode you know what I mean? Until she's ready for it to right. explode. And no one to blame is one of those songs. I was going to um, ask you, because we keep uh, name-checking Greg Filling Games, but for those that are going to listen to this that don't know, you know, can you break down, you know, the massive contributions or some of the things people would know him for? You know, we talk about Detroit a lot because we talk about Motown, but that's just like the tip of the iceberg of the folks and the talent that Detroit has an sure. impact that it's had. So, you know, I think Greg Filling Games, I know he played on this album, Giving You the Best That Guy, maybe Rapture. I feel like he was on Rapture too. But also Greg too, George Duke George Duke was too. Sure. Didn't he also do wasn't he also on Songs in the Key of Life? Yes. He was okay. on Songs. He's one of those anything that has like a dope piano part to it, That's Greg Filling Games <laughs> is probably on it. But you know, people I think started to really know him um because he played on Michael Jackson's Bad album. Mm. Um he was a music director from Michael Jackson's Bad Tour. Mm. And so I mean like Greg Filling Games is just everybody's secret sauce. He's not even a secret, he's just a beast. And, you know, thankfully he's still with us living out mm-hmm. here in LA. Mm-hmm just making people's albums sound infinitely better because he's just an incredible pianist and and um, arranger and music director. I, I hear him most, or my, my favorite uh, uh, piano on here is on Lonely. Yeah, that's another good one. I mean, that's a star turn yeah, for Greg. Like, yeah, you almost don't even really yeah. need... It could be an instrumental. It really Absolutely. could. Absolutely. I wanted to ask about... Let's talk a little bit about the Grammys. Yeah. Okay? Uh, because it, she won... This album won Best R&B Album. And she had also been nominated a gang of times. She won 1990 for Giving You the Best That I Got. And she won 1991 in Compositions. All those years were tough years. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were a few few people that she ran against that you were like, wait, I don't know. Because I think one year she was up against Pebbles mm-hmm. uh, for, the ben- for the benefit. <laughs> now, the benefit was a jam, but I'm like, really? It's like, <laughs> Come on. Pebbles, that song is cute. But, However. Right. Yeah. I was, this song was cute. Though. It was. Was Taylor Dane? Yeah. Like, one year she was up against Taylor Dane. Yeah. I was like, come on Oh, now. Taylor Dane. Hey, girl. That was, that was a jam, too. Yeah. Uh, but it was just like, nah. Yeah. Um, but all of this was in the R&B category. And a lot of people have said she's so jazzy why wasn't she in the jazz category mm-hmm. do you see compositions as jazz with a side of R&B or, or R&B with a side of jazz that's a great question um, I see it with R&B with a side of jazz but the thing is honestly back in the 80s that's what R&B was like there was just a heavy dose it, and when you're trying to understand why, you look at the st- um, the session musicians who were largely folks who had a, a serious jazz bag, sure. bag or were straight ahead jazz musicians. And so um, I think, unfortunately, and I'm I'm a for real jazz fan, you know, nerd out on it. I think the fact that she perhaps wasn't considered jazz 
artist speaks to the worst of how people police jazz, mm. honestly. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, you could look at it this way. What might that have done for jazz as a genre in terms of its pop culture resonance if Anita Baker had been associated with jazz? Right. I think that's a missed opportunity, quite honestly. If you had to pick a song off of here that you'd want to hear a contemporary artist take on, Mm. what would be the song and who would be the artist? And before you answer that, I mean, I was listening to your discussion about sort of, you know, how do you situate Anita Baker relative to all these other musicians and, and also to your point earlier, Morgan, about just the way in which, at least for a more kind of conservative music industry, she never really fit comfortably yeah. into these categories. But you think about younger artists. I, I was, you know, Leanne LeHavis came to mm-hmm. mind, not because she sounds like Anita Baker, but because she is described as both a jazz and an R&B singer. That's now an asset in a right. way that for Baker was seen as a bit of a liability. Yeah. And yeah. Maybe, maybe it's a sign of some bit of music industry maturity to some extent. Anyways, but yeah, who would you, who would you want to hear take on something off a composition? I think... It would be amazing if King did Perfect Love Affair. Oh, my God. We were talking about those harmonies yeah. earlier mm-hmm. with, like, the Perry sisters and with Paris's production skills. I feel like they could have something new to say with that song that would be mm-hmm. more than worth hearing. So if they hear this... They should do sure. perfect love affair. Sure. Like I we're think we're gonna tweet them the suggestion. It, absolutely, no, I think they could like really just take it somewhere beautiful. Absolutely. To close this out, if you had to describe compositions in three words and three words only, what would they be? Introspective, lush. Mm. Mm. Third one's always the hardest. Yeah, I want to say soaring. Mm. Mm. Hmm. And which can feel kind of contradictory if I say introspective, but there's something that breaks free in it, too. So, yeah, those are my three. I'm going to stick with that. Well, that will do it for this episode of Heat Rocks with our special guest, Dara Hadley. Where can people find you? They can find me. I'm um, on Instagram. I'm on Twitter, at Fredera, because no one else has his name. If you <laughs> look look up Fredera, I'm at Fredera on Instagram, Fredera Maryva, my middle name on Twitter. If you look me up on Facebook, the Book of Faces, I'm the only Fredera on there. So shout out to my parents for making me easily findable, I guess. <laughs> Holler at me. I'm talking about music. That's pretty much... All I do. Get into Juxy too. Great, yeah, great radio show and, uh, and, and check it out. Yes. Hey, Rocks is produced by myself, Oliver Wang, Shannon Deloria, and Kara Hart. And today's show was engineered and edited by Kara and Shana. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and executive producer is Jesse Thorne. We are part of the Maximum Fun family, taping every week live in their Whatever It Takes studios <laughs> in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod, and you can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage. That's HeatRocksPod.com. 
That page is where we will post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of whatever you heard today and other goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. We want to thank our five-star iTunes reviewers, except there are no new ones since the last episode. So please get on that. And again, in all seriousness, uh, those reviews are a huge way in which we get to build our audience. So if you are listening, if you love the show and you haven't done it before, go to iTunes and leave us a brief review. We would very much appreciate it. We also wanted to thank all of our social media fans out there, including Gustavo Turner, who's rocked with us from the very beginning, Tasty Quiche, Chris Art, Just Marla out of Philly, Bev's Kid one um steve chabatini mark vanderloff and tragically skip which has to be one of the best twitter handles i have heard in a while we do so appreciate the tweezies and retweezies good to see you oliver good to see you too morgan and before we get out of here one last thing here is a teaser from next week's episode which features podcaster Cole Kushner of Dissect talking with us about Yeezus by Kanye West what did it for you like what's the thing that puts this above the other albums for you sonically it takes a lot of risks which is always appealing to me you know I I always kind of consider this album his I'm a big Radiohead fan and you know Mm. when Radiohead released Kid A you know, mm. They went from OK Computer to just this electronic record that everyone just didn't really know what to do with. You know, you can say the same thing about the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper moment. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's artists that are in kind of the popular culture sphere that have everyone's attention. It's one thing to create and kind of piggyback on the success that you have done. It's another to use your celebrity and use your kind of artistic merit to introduce popular culture to something new and that involves risk and i think that risk should be rewarded maximumfun.org comedy and culture artist owned listener supported